Dear listeners, you've heard me mention before at the top of the show that we now have a Patreon page. If you haven't joined yet, please consider doing so now. We have tiers ranging from $2 a month to $20. And if you sign up before the 30th of April, 2021, you can get a sneak peek of my upcoming book, To Baptize or Not to Baptize. Pull ahead of the pack by hopping over to patreon.com forward slash Sarah Henlicky Wilson and become a patron of Queen of the Sciences today. Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky Wilson. And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Show. Our topic is the book of Nehemiah in the old to love unlovely books of the Bible. We've already done <laughs> Leviticus and Joshua. Um, you know, we gave a lot of time to Acts, which especially the later parts are are basically neglected. I mean, I you know think Mark and Romans and John are all lovable, but Nehemiah. As I recall, <laughs> Dad, when I first proposed this, you were kind of like, "Why do you want to do that?" And you better. But anyway, why don't you explain your reluctance to do Nehemiah, and I will follow up with my interest in doing it. You know, as Sarah, as you provoked me to study Nehemiah and get into it. Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and to, you know, really take it seriously for the first time in a very long time, look at a couple of commentaries and so forth, it occurred to me that, and I'm not sure about this, whether I just absorbed this by osmosis from the literature I read when I was a student, uh, or whether it was actually explicitly taught to me. But we kind of had in our minds a paradigm. You know, here were, here was the nomadic faith of the patriarchs, so brave, venturing into an unknown land. And then there was the uh, 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 Moses and the uh, deliverance from Egypt. But then... There was Joshua, the slaughters, the judges, and the chaos, and kingship. And then from that decline, however, arose the Hebrew prophets, the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, Amos and Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the high point of ancient Israelite religion. Then came the exile, and after the brief flickering light of second Isaiah, then came Ezra and Nehemiah <laughs> and the descent of Judaism into ritualism and xenophobia and legalism. And that persisted until arose Jesus and a bright light <laughs> shone again in Israel. But alas, then came Paul and early Catholicism. And so this supersessionist pattern um, of historical progress, this narrative of what historical progress in religion is, somehow I had absorbed that deeply and uh, read Ezra and Nehemiah, if I ever read them at all in my student days, as nothing but proof of the decline of, into Judaism, ritualism, legalism, xenophobia, etc. 
You know, I went back, Dad, and listened to our second ever episode on Is Scripture Holy? And if you recall, I threw a a few difficult passages of Scripture at you to deal with, and one of them was this just list of names from Nehemiah, nothing other than the names of returned exiles. And, um, And you're like, yeah, well, overall, Nehemiah is just, you know, about you know, intermarriage being forbidden. And, you know, it was basically that, you know, it's just kind of a setup for Jesus. But I, I, I'm willing to guess, given the preface you've just uh, treated us to, that you've had a radical change of heart. Well, I've certainly had a change of heart about the supersessionist scheme of religious progress. Uh, but that's been building in me for many, many years now. Uh, more particularly, um, Reading Ezra and Nehemiah, I began to appreciate the perspective the, um, of the dispossessed, uh, the disinherited, as um, it's been uh, otherwise phrased, the dispossessed, the disinherited. Uh, there's a passage in Ezra's long prayer, and uh, actually it's kind of a sermonic prayer, uh, In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 36 and 37, I want to read where Nehemiah, where Ezra has just rehearsed the whole saving history of the Lord with his people Israel and the recurrent pattern of the Lord's faithfulness and the people's infidelity. And it comes now to this juncture of the present all the way through Israel's history. And Ezra poignantly concludes, Here we are, slaves to this day, slaves in the land that you gave to our ancestors to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power also over our bodies and over our livestock at their pleasure. And we are in great distress, period, close quote. And this verse of, this concluding verse of Ezra's prayer, Sarah, uh, was like lights flashing on for me as I struggled with the interpretation of the biblical book of Joshua. Because just Ah. prior to this, uh, Ezra has rehearsed the victories uh, uh, under Joshua when the Lord gave the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the ironic denouement that all that uh, inheritance of the Lord for the people of Israel was squandered and lost on account of their sins with the denouement as Ezra just expressed it. And what I realized was that is precisely what the Germans call the Sitz im Leben, the situation in life in which the book of Joshua in its final form was composed, that the book of Joshua was, was written to the people who, in a, Ezra's words, realize that they are slaves in this very land that you gave to our ancestors to possess and we are in great distress, created a whole new under understanding of what the book of Joshua was really all about. 
That's interesting because there's another explicit connection to Joshua in Nehemiah, which is that they celebrate the festival of booths. And it's said that it has not been observed since the time of Joshua, which seems pretty unlikely because at least under Josiah, they would have rediscovered the law that included booths. And Josiah made great efforts uh, on which, you know, Ezra is definitely patterned to restore the, the practice of the law and all the festivals. But it's interesting that they single out since the time of Joshua, they clearly have that that um, dialectic between Joshua's time and, and their own time now post-exile, um, that they're making the connection there. Right. And the connection is really significant, isn't it? Because the Festival of Booths has several different significances, but uh, it's meant in terms of Israel's history with the Lord. It's meant to remind them that they are a pilgrim people sojourning through the wilderness who have uh, no permanent home here on this earth and that the very land which the Lord can give them, the Lord can also take away from them, depending upon whether or not they uh, prove to be the Israel of the covenant. And of course, it also is a memory of being at the foot of Mount Sinai and receiving the law for the first time. So every time they return to it, they're receiving the law afresh. And, and in the, these chapters eight and nine, that's exactly what's happening. It's the renewal of covenants, the, the covenant that was lost from its time at Sinai and is now being restored. Very good. So what do you want to talk about in this book, Sarah? Or maybe you should tell us about it a little bit first. Well, I sh probably should start by saying why I got interested at all. So the um, the the first reason is that it has one of my favorite passages of the Bible. I always feel a bit silly saying that, like you're allowed to have your own personal canon within a canon. But in chapter eight, just before you were talking about, um, there's this um, account of how all of the people are gathered and Ezra and Nehemiah and bunch of Levites, they are they go through a reading of the entire law, probably more or less what we would call the Pentateuch now, to the assembled people. They're reading it in Hebrew. The Levites translate, quote unquote, into Aramaic or, you know, just make render it intelligible to the, the people as they go. And the reaction of the people is, again, very similar to in Josiah's time where, you know, he, he rent his garment. And so now the people gathered in Jerusalem, they start weeping and mourning when they realize Look at all these aspects of the law and the covenant we've been neglecting all these years. But this is what I love. They are interrupted and they are told that because they have heard the word of the Lord, this is a good day. That their first reaction should not be their sorrow over their failure to keep it, but joy that they've heard it again. And so then comes this passage I love so much. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And I find that wonderful on several levels. First of all, simply that so many people have been beaten up by the Bible or by other holy texts. And, you know, it's it's not inappropriate to have a shock of recognition, especially when encountering the law at what you have not kept. And yet the first reaction, the proper reaction, is first of all, joy simply that the Lord has spoken to you. In chapter 9, which you referred to, then it's appropriate to take stock and grieve and repent and put on sackcloth and renew the covenant and get a fresh start. But the first reaction to hearing the word of God should be joy. And I think that's tremendous. Here is a point of tension between Karl Barth and certain Genesio Lutherans who opposed him in the 30s. When Barth argued that to hear God speak at all is good news, that Deus Dixit, the Lord has spoken, God has spoken, is itself good news when God's word actually reaches through and hits home to us. And within that, you can distinguish between the law as a word of accusation and the gospel as a word of consolation or something like that. Uh, But some certain kinds of Lutherans, particularly I'm thinking of Werner Ehlert, utterly disagreed with Bart about that and said there's no reconciling the accusing word of the law and the consoling word of the gospel. It is not good news, lex semper accusat, and that should be a word of terror, never to be taken with joy and consolation. What do you think about that, Sarah? I think it's frank bullshit, to be honest, and I'm sorry that we don't have a profanity label <laughs> on our, our podcast, but that it it's so wrong on so many levels. And, you know, I won't even try to argue with someone like Ehlert about his own deep supersessionism and anti-Judaism. But man, is it a bad reading of Martin Luther, who presumably Ehlert should have known better. <laughs> and it's also, maybe make this more of a cultural critique, it is the complete blindness of someone who lives in a highly ordered society and therefore does not even see all the ways the law has made his life good and beneficial and then can afford in this very shallow, contemptuous way to make fun of the law as the ordering principle that gets people out of chaos, which threatens on every... Well, all right, you can tell this gets me very exercised, but (laughs) it's just... It's it's so evil and so wrong, it's destructive of people. You know, the law cannot save you. That is true. But there's lots of other great things that the law can do. And just because it can't save doesn't mean it's bad. There are lots of things that can't save, like, you know, your family or delicious food or a nice walk in nature. None of those things save you. Are they therefore evil? I just, I'm sorry. And Melanchthon, too, he was wrong. It's not true that lo- the law always accuses. Sometimes it directs and helps and gives you a fresh start and helps you to do better things with the time that's been given to you. But, you know, here here is part of the problem is that the word Torah, which gets translated as nomos into Greek, it's a somewhat misleading uh, translation in terms of understanding what, what the Torah is in, in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament texts like this, because the fundamental meaning of Torah is divine instruction divine teaching. And yes, much of the divine teaching is in the form of an imperative. But throughout, for example, the book of Deuteronomy, the imperative is always encased 
in the divine indicative of gracious election uh, and the assurance of the unending mercies of the Lord and the contextualization, wrath lasts for a moment, but the loving kindness, the chesed of the Lord lasts forever. So I think that what you have, really what Paul the Apostle is talking about, is a certain tension within the Torah between its uh, indicative passages of mercy and election and its imperative passages which threaten consequences for disobedience. Uh, and that tension is not over against Torah, it's a tension within Torah. But that's a whole nother story. Let's get back to Nehemiah. <laughs> well, I actually think that's extremely relevant because the point is that tension is best explored dramatically rather than thematically or rationalistically. And um, that's another reason why I'm attracted to Nehemiah. So the, the basic story problem, let's say, is that if God selects and elects Israel and blesses them and gives them all these good things, so far, so good. But what if Israel uses that blessing to do evil, which, of course, is the huge story of the Old Testament, is evil being done again and again? Then what? That in turn impugns God's blessing and saying, oh, I get it. God is the one who authorizes any number of evil behaviors on the part of his so-called chosen people. So God himself must be evil. So now what is God to do? And this is like the constant tension, you know, like God wants to destroy the Israelites when they're out in the wilderness. And Moses is like, do you do realize? realize what that's going to do to your reputation, God, right? If you kill the Israelites now, the Egyptians will be sure that you are evil and that they are evil and or the Israelites are getting exactly what they deserved. Are you sure you want to go through with that? So now God is basically in the position of saying, all right, well, how do I continue to bless these people who have done so wrong? And that, again, is it, when people, when, you know, theologians traditionally try to resolve this in terms of like the omniscience and omnipotence and omni benevolence and, you know, whether God's will sees everything or causes all things. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with exploring those theoretically, but I think that the questions are best answered dramatically instead because it's it, it always depends on the specifics of the case and the ongoing unfolding relationship, and that's much harder to define conceptually than it is to depict dramatically. Yeah, in fact, uh, you're proving yourself here to be a good student of an of a one who was also a good student of Karl Barth, Robert Jensen, who insisted upon the narrative reading of the Bible in terms of discovering its dramatic coherence. And dramatic coherence is always a resolution to a, a, a plot conflict that cannot be anticipated. The resolution can't be anticipated, but in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. That, that's kind of the notion of dramatic uh, coherence in which, for example, then for Christians, the saving significance of the death of Jesus is, which you can only discover in the light of Easter morning, uh, is the surprising message that he who died accursed by the law was in, a fa in, a, in reality fulfilling the law, not on his own behalf, but on behalf of those who could not fulfill it. Something like that would be the dramatic coherence or resolution of a conflict uh, that the, the story of Israel culminating in the story of Jesus leads us to. I'll just go you one further, Sarah. 
that the narrative, the narrative approach, not only uh, the narrative approach actually ought to frame our theological questions, rather than importing over from uh, uh, the classical tradition of metaphysics in the West uh, a set of a priori issues about what God must be and what God can or cannot be and then using that as the scaffolding with which to interpret Scripture. I think it goes the, exactly the other way around. It's the read, uh, reading of Scripture in terms of narrative reading of Scripture in terms of its dramatic coherence that ought to pose our theological questions and revise our pre-existing metaphysics. Hey, that sounds like a good lifetime project. Yep. Okay, let's get back to Nehemiah. <laughs> well, yeah, I was actually going to do that now. So to bring this all back to Nehemiah, the, the other reason besides this beloved passage that I was particularly interested in it is because Nehemiah is a memoir or composed in part of memoir. And uh, on my reading, it is the only such memoir in the Old Testament. You could maybe make the argument that the Re revelation of John functions that way too, but it's more like a vision really than, than a memoir. The point is that much of Nehemiah is narrated in the first person and presents the point of view of a single person. And obviously that's very unusual in the whole canon of holy scripture. And so, of course, having written a memoir myself, um, it suddenly like jumped out at me, jumped off the page in a way that it hadn't before. And I couldn't help, of course, but also think of Augustine, who by writing the Confessions, which in some sense is the first true memoir of the West, he uh, you know, kind of creates the the kind of self-consciousness, self-awareness, narrating of one's own history and then sharing it with others for a purpose that by now, you know, uh, nowadays has been called the age of memoir. There's just this explosion of people telling their own story and trying to fit it into the larger story. So needless to say, I was really surprised and delighted that there is even a pre-Augustinian precedent here in Nehemiah. And two things um, have become clear to me in the process of, you know, reading Nehemiah, uh, reading memoirs like Nehemiah's and Augustine's and writing my own. The first is that all memoirs are meditations on providence. Even if memoirs are written by people who are not explicitly believers in any religion, they will use parallel terms like luck or serendipity or chance or the forces of the universe aligning or something. But there's always this sense that your own personal story is never purely a self-made story, but an interaction of your tiny little existence within this much larger story. And, you know, so you're very much buffeted about, and yet somehow your little spark of yourself manages to make some kind of impression on this enormous world. So for believers, that is called providence, the ways in which your little tiny life is guided through the outrageous tumult of the wor world to some place that you can end doxologically and say, thank you, Lord, or bless me, Lord, or I've brought this to you, Lord, you know, please pass a merciful judgment on what I've done. Wow, Sarah, that's really interesting. Um, and it provokes a number of thoughts in me. Uh, when you consider the fact that Nehemiah is writing some 400 plus years before Christ, and that here we have the record of a, as you put it, a personal memoir from that stage in human civilization, that in itself is quite remarkable. Uh, yes. uh, I, I don't think it exists elsewhere uh, to have such a such an interesting uh, chronicle 
uh, of one's life story, at least a significant part of one's life story. And I think part of what makes it possible, I'm just, this is kind of a theological feedback to what you said about meditation on providence. What makes Nehemiah's self-awareness possible as he proceeds to account for the beginning and execution of his mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem from his position uh, of uh, intimacy with the Persian emperor and so forth, Um, and his endurance through uh, periods of persecution and opposition from the locals. Uh, What makes all that, what hangs, the thread on which the whole thing hangs together is the opening prayer in the book of Nehemiah to the Lord as the Lord of the nations. You called it providence. I think what Nehemiah says at the very beginning is, something about being the God in heaven and on earth. And, and uh, he said, uh, yeah, he's, this is Nehemiah chapter 1. I mourned for days fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant. And then he goes on to confess the sins of Israel Uh, in the effect, like Ezra later on, acknowledging that uh, the sorry state of Israel and its misery uh, and distress uh, are being received and interpreted uh, as the severe mercy of the Lord, to use a phrase from Augustine's Confessions. Uh, as the just punishment for the sins of Israel. And it's owning up to those sorry situations, owning up to that history, not as my bad ancestors who screwed it up, but as my history uh, for which I am responsible, even if I did not personally commit the sins of my ancestors. Nevertheless, I've inherited them in some mysterious way. And it's because I'm able to stand before the God of heaven and and tell the truth about myself, not just as an atomistic individual, but as a member of Israel. Because I'm enabled to do that, I'm able to see uh, beyond the moment of wrath the eternal loving kindness of the Lord, and therefore to endure this time of trial and suffering in hope for a better future. And that enables Nehemiah's agency. That puts him to work in the world to act hopefully. Exactly. That's so beautifully put, Dad, because it is the free confession of sins that becomes this empowering act. Because you take responsibility for yourself and for your past, not because you can atone fully or fix things or redeem yourself at all, but because there's no more lies. You've been set forward into the truth. And like you said, it creates your agency in the world. And that's a perfect bridge, actually, into the other thing I find fascinating about the memoir genre as it plays out in Nehemiah. Because... Well, 
let, let me put it this way. You know, it would seem obvious that I studied theology because I'm your daughter, but on a <laughs> even more even more deep level than the, the family heritage, you know, I studied theology because I wanted to know how to live. And theology seemed to me like the best way to answer the very pressing question, well, here I am. This is my life. What do I do with it? And if God is a reality, then probably the best way to figure out how to live my life is to pay attention to him. But when you start studying um, theological anthropology, and especially if you come from the um, Lutheran heritage, you immediately run into this absolute mare's nest of thorny, tangled issues about divine and human agency and how they play out with each other. And of course, even in the first century of Lutheranism, there's this, you know, huge back and forth as, you know, Luther is, is set free, but then asserts ongoing bondage. And he says, we, you know, only Christ can save us. And yet he exhorts us through the, his commentaries on the Ten Commandments to continue to be obedient and to grow in faith and love. And then you have Melanchthon come along and try to figure it out. And I think Melanchthon is a lot wor more worried about Epicureanism than Luther as the product of the monastery ever could have been. And so he's trying to figure out, well, how do we get people to actually behave themselves and control themselves? <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, there's the Catholics looking on and saying, man, this is not going to go well if you don't have a way to tell people that they they have to try at least. And then, you know, what does trying mean? Is that a moral trying within the, the horizontal bounds of human civilization? Or is it a spiritual striving like Gabriel Beale? And then you have like the extreme providence predestination forms coming out of the reform tradition. So all of which is to just return back to the point I made earlier, which is sorting out the interplay of divine and human action works so much better in a story than it does trying to come up with a conceptual scheme that you can always make worse, that you can always make work. And what you see throughout Nehemiah is that everything is attributed to God again and again. Like you said, it starts with prayer. There are prayers throughout. There is confession of sin. There is attribution of God when the, the walls are built. There is um, the response to the taunts of Sanballat and Tobiah, the uh, resident hustlers who are running Jerusalem for their own personal gain, is that you can laugh at me all you want, but God will rebuild these walls. So there is no doubting in Nehemiah, who makes the good stuff happen? It's God. And yet the story itself is the story of Nehemiah's action, what he's doing, including the fact that he prays, including that he does make a request before King Artaxerxes and comes back to Jerusalem and he surveys the walls and he, you know, gathers the troops and gets them to start working on the walls again. And, you know, he is an active agent throughout the story. And to me, the, the interplay of those two, of the divine and human action, are deeply satisfying in Nehemiah because they simply ring true to life. It's neither um, uh, spiritually aspirational, you know, I will do this and God rewards me and like the worst kind of Gabriel Beale or prosperity theology. But it's also not... Uh, quietest hands in the air passivity well you know you know god will make it happen if he wants it to happen but there's nothing i can do uh, th this nehemiah is a real story about how it really works when divine and human figures interact with each other that's really interesting sarah and i think you're on the right track uh with with this i would just beg to slightly differ and say that in philosophy in in the western tradition of philosophy there's a long standing uh, dilemma about the relationship of the natural necessity of events in a closed cosmos and the experience of contingency 
uh, and that experience of contingency seems to be the the small window through which ideas of human freedom can be lodged or something like that. Uh, I think most serious thinkers of our times uh, live so thoroughly in a closed universe, of a very secular universe, in which everything is determined by the causal, in within the causal nexus, uh, such that even what appears to the human self to be a spontaneous act uh, on analysis is nothing but an epiphenomena of uh, impersonal subconscious uh, forces and power plays. I think that kind of view of, of, of human freedom, which is really no freedom at all, uh, is pervasive in contemporary uh, philosophy. Can I, can I just say briefly there that philosophers need to pay more attention to both neuroscience and quantum physics because they're going to be shocked out of their comforts? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, I'm not so sure about that myself. That's another topic. What I want to get onto, though, is something which you were trying to say, I think, is that if we distinguish not separate, but distinguish philosophy and theology. I think in theology, there is a place to talk about theological compatibilism, uh, uh, a compatibilism between divine theonomy and genu a genuine human agency, uh, and with some trepidation, I'll even use the word autonomy, uh, that uh, divine agency and human agency are not competitors. Uh, but they can become, uh, at least in the redeemed humanity, cooperators. At the end of the bondage of the will, Luther himself said, God has redeemed us for no other purpose than that we become cooperators with God. <laughs> you know, So I, I think there is a, a theological compatibilism that's different. But I want to ask you about this. You just got through saying that uh, Nehemiah's agency is not a matter of offering uh, his good works to the Lord or something like that, right? I don't think I quite said that, but go ahead with your, your question anyway. I just want to ask you about all interspersed throughout the memoir are passages like 519. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Here's another example of that in chapter 13. At the very end, it happens three times in verse 14. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And again in 13.22. And I uh, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And fi the final verse of the book in Nehemiah 13, 31. Remember me, O my God, for good. So what do you make of those passages? Well, the first thing I was would say is that we ought not retroject Christian notions of salvation and justification backwards onto Nehemiah, because that is clearly an anachronistic move. Even if we read canonically, Nehemiah is not making the kind of appeal of, look at my good works and therefore don't send me to hell, that would characterize later Christian thought. So I think we can just wipe that misunderstanding away. 
But it seems to me it's clear from the very first moments of the story that this is entirely a faith-forward kind of movement. Nehemiah is starting already from the place of being in a relationship with the Lord God of Israel and wishing to serve him and grieving. Like It, it actually starts not even with a desire to do good works, but with grief when the word comes to him back in Persia of the state of Jerusalem. And as a good Israelite, even in exile, he knows that Jerusalem is the holy city. And therefore, its its dreadful state is something deeply to be mourned. And then it's out of that that the Lord makes the first action to open Artaxerxes' heart to allowing Nehemiah to go back. And so everything that Nehemiah does is an offering, not in order to win salvation or favor that God is skeptical about or withholding, but as an expression of Nehemiah's already knowing the merciful covenant's love of the Lord. So, I mean, posing those as if somehow they are at odds with the larger story. It's its just misleading. The good deeds are an expression. And honestly, I mean, I don't, how, how many devout Christians go to their death and are utterly indifferent towards what they have spent their whole lives doing? I mean, even if our works don't save us, this is the life we've been given and that we live. Like I said, how do I live? And I think anyone, I'm assuming by the time you're ready to meet your maker, you want to know that you haven't totally wasted the gifts that he's given you all along. Don't you think so? I think that's all well and good, Sarah. There's nothing you say that I disagree with, but I'm still curious. Again, going back to the theme of a memoir and Nehemiah's self-awareness vis-a-vis his standing before God in prayer. These are themes that are very important for me. Let me just say quickly why. In my systematic theology, the final section, uh, uh, the doctrine of God the Father, Patrology, Uh, has a long section uh, on conscience and conscience being this personal relationship of responsibility to my maker and redeemer for my little piece of his world, responsibility to God for my world. That's the theological structure of conscience. And I think that one of the grave problems in contemporary theology is the apparent decline of that sense of theological conscientiousness of being Mm. responsible to God for what I say and do as a theologian. Um, So that's, that's one aspect of this. And another aspect, and I think the part of it that, that you really hit on there is that when I talk about myself uh, theologically, I have to talk about my biography, about my my history, about what I am between my birthday and my death day, the unique ways in which God has been continually creating and mercifully recreating and redeeming uh, this journey, which I am from birthday uh, to death day. And I wonder if that kind of perspective puts Nehemiah's reiterated prayer. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. It's not as if I'm saying that way that these good works uh, merit some kind of divine acceptance. That's what you were rejecting. But it is saying, it's talking about the significance of my life, the meaningfulness of my life and my life's journey. And I think uh, many theologians have observed that since the 20th century, it is the threat of meaninglessness 
that really assails us, assaults us, that our lives, our little lives on this earth have no uh, significance, uh, that we're simply flotsam and jetsam on the waves of energy that are pulsating through. And so I wonder if Nehemiah's prayers can be understood rather in this way, uh, Lord, let not my labors be in vain, but see mm. the labor that I have done in your name and faith toward you and in trust in your mercy and let them not be obliterated, fall into oblivion, be forgotten from the face of the earth. And that very prayer then is enacted in the writing of a memoir. You know, Dad, that's so interesting because that that prayer, let my labor not be in vain. I think that's exactly right. I think so many people know that their labor is in vain. Even even if they're being paid well for what they're doing, it's pointless and they know it. There's There's been a, a lot of um, reflection lately on what's, you know, just the the proliferation of meaningless work. But then that flips to me to another concern, which is that someone like Nehemiah has a clear mandate for the good, which is to rebuild the walls of the destroyed city. And it's clearly throughout the memoir presented as a blessed work um, commissioned by God. But that can lead <laughs> to people who want to take inspiration from Nehemiah to another very dangerous um, extreme, which is, you know, as I've observed before, everyone wants to be a prophet. Everyone wants to make the world a better place. Everyone wants to do something really valuable and leave a mark, leave a legacy, change history. Uh, that is also part of the, um, I think, celebrity malaise of our American culture in the 21st century is that unless I am doing something hugely good and I can reassure myself that God blesses it and authorizes it, then my motivation is totally lacking. I don't see the point of it at all. But what that does is creates a situation in which you can never repent. You can never learn. You can never go back at, even at the last hour of your life and say, dear God, I devoted myself to an evil cause or a cause I thought I w was good had all these unintended consequences for evil. I didn't realize it. And so there can be a way in which invoking divine authorization in order to fill the void of meaninglessness can create its own kind of danger. And maybe in mm. that respect, Nehemiah's plead to God. I mean, it's in the form of a prayer rather than of a statement. It says, I'm asking you, Lord, let my labors not be in vain. I'm asking you to bless me. I'm asking you to remember this to my good. There is this kind of admission or undercurrents uh, as firm as Nehemiah was in his action that I still need God to be the final judge on my story. I don't get to finally say, oh, it's fine. You know, I, I, I was doing God's work. So end of discussion. Yeah, that's that, you know, he did have a, an official position, you know, he was uh, in the court of the Persian emperor. And from there, he became the governor, right, of this territory. Right, for 12 years. He, yeah, over which he presided. So you could say that he was, uh, you could argue that he turned his station in life, this position of political authority within the Persian Empire into a vocation of service to the uh, people of God, uh, uh, conscientiously uh, before God for the little piece of the world that was entrusted to him. That all makes sense to me, and it raises a couple of, I think, really interesting further dimensions of this literature. 
One would be the question of Nehemiah's integrity, of the, of the character of his behavior in face of laziness on the part of some and, and disunity on the part of, of the Jews and opposition on the part of the Samaritans and others, uh, how he dealt with these adversities, his uh, support of Ezra and the uh, reform of the temple worship and so forth. All of these are questions of character in which uh, uh, Nehemiah puts his own personal integrity in the memoir on display. You know, he, he, he makes a point of saying, I didn't take compensation because the burdens imposed on the people were so severe uh, and I wanted to walk the walk, not just talk that talk. That's one set of issues I'd like you to respond to. And when you're done with that, the other issue I want to come back to is walls. Building the walls, both as a, in reality and as a metaphor. When you ask about Nehemiah's integrity, are you asking it skeptically, like he's, he's putting it on display? No. I just, okay. uh, in terms of a memoir, uh, I think in some ways, Nehemiah's talking about his own behavior is without that kind of self-consciousness at all. He's just proceeding and saying, saying, this is what I did and this is why I did it. And what we see, readers see, is integrity. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think, again, Augustine is the one who pioneers for us the commentary on the divided self. And such acute awareness of the divided self, I think, is something that actually Jewish and Christian tradition do give rise to. I think Christer Stendhal is maybe right, at least so far as that goes, not not where he took it. But I don't think there there's any reason to suppose that in Nehemiah there's any conscious attempt to use his integrity or his self-presentation to pull a fast one on anyone or to hide internal conflicts that he might have had. I think, in fact, he is charting out in a public way and, you know, one of the first documents we have in history, probably, of showing how it is that your internal commitment to God expresses itself in corresponding agency in the world. And that so that people know also how to interpret the actions, because otherwise, you know, we don't have access to people's minds. We, we can infer, but we don't know what drives them to act the way they do. So his account of why I did it and my religious motivation for doing so is really important. Those two have to be in a kind of feedback loop of, of, self, of um, mutual reinforcement and explanation. Right. So, um, the um, examples of um, Nehemiah's integrities in the book, uh, for those who have not just spent the last uh, several hours reading Nehemiah in preparation for this podcast, perhaps we should mention uh, some of the examples of that integrity. Well, let, let's give two, one that we can we can get behind and one that we maybe can't. So the first, as you mentioned, in chapter five, there's people, uh, interpreters think this was maybe interpolated out of order. But basically, there is um, severe economic problems within Jerusalem and the outlying areas, which Nehemiah interprets as the local Jews 
breaking faith with one another. And by not keeping the law and by not looking out for each other, they're at the point that they have to sell their children into slavery. You know, it's a little bit different from modern slavery, but, you know, it's it's the more like an, maybe an indentured servant or something like that. And then when Nehemiah creates a buyback scheme for these indentured Israelites, the locals exploit it by selling off more children so that because they know that they, they get the profit from the sale and then Nehemiah is going to buy them back anyway. So he is extremely <laughs> angry about this and tells them to stop doing it. And that's in, it's in the context of that, that Nehemiah says, as governor, I was entitled to a tax to pay for the feeding of my household. But that would have just put more of an economic strain on my fellow Jews. And my whole point is to teach them not to exploit each other. So I refused to take this and I provided for myself out of my own means. So I think in that case, the, the, the fronting of the action and the intention of integrity is something we can admire greatly. Right? Yeah, I really agree with that. And, you know, this is kind of like a reiteration of the Levitical law of Jubilee uh, that he uh, alludes to here when he uh, talks about uh, uh, returning. Let us stop this taking of interest. I'm in chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, the interest on money, grain, and wine, the oil that you have been exacting from them. And the people, the rich people who had been uh, abusing uh, their poor fellow Jews this way are utterly uh, uh, arrested by uh, Nehemiah's intervention. They They were silent. They could not find a word to say. And finally, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And then Nehemiah makes them promise to do this. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. That's quite a remarkable act of political leadership that is based on Nehemiah's character and uh, integrity. So the extension of that, which is going to be much more uncomfortable for readers now, is the prohibition on intermarriage with non-Israelite people. So you remember, you know, the the whole area has been severely depopulated since the exile. And even though this is taking place about 70 years after the exile ends, Jerusalem itself is still pretty empty of Jews, of of Israelites. And so um, it seems that Ezra actually wanted to break up intermarried couples, but Nehemiah simply said, no more marrying outside of the folds. Um, uh, and this also has an economic aspect because, again, we, we tend to hear this forbidding of intermarriage and we think of, you know, people in love who are being denied the right to be together. But that is not how people were getting married. It was an economic arrangement, you know, set in place by family and society. You know, let's hope that some of them were in love with each other at some point. But that the point is not forbidding people in love, but looking for the best deal you can get for, you know, this daughter who, you know, is a burden because you have to pay her dowry or whatever. And so, again, what what Nehemiah sees is not only, again, the wealth exiting the community by marrying daughters out, but also by bringing foreign women in, it's undermining the covenant relationship further. In the very last chapter, he observes that the children of intermarried couples can no longer speak the language of the Jews. Um, It's not entirely clear what that what that would have been or how different it would have been from the dialects of like the Ammonites and the Moabites or whatever. 
But, you know, it, that that's actually very accurate uh, recognition that children learn from their mothers. And so if their mothers are not are not Israelites and do not worship the Lord God and do not speak the language in which the worship takes place, yes, it is going to very rapidly undermine the religious identity of the community. Um, it's a little disturbing that in this last chapter, Nehemiah actually goes so far as to pull hair. <laughs> <laughs> he's really, really mad. Um, but it's also because he's gone back to report to Artaxerxes after his 12 years of governorship. And when he comes back, they've all gone back to their evil ways. Even um, one of his enemies has basically set up shop inside of the temple. All the people who were brought into Jerusalem have moved back out again, and all these intermarriages have taken place. It is really hard to maintain the integrity of the community. And so it's like, Nehemiah's own integrity is the last bulwark uh, against total dissolution all over again. Yes, and here you have, uh, don't you, one of the things that also makes us uncomfortable about this, Sarah, is that Nehemiah, of course, is acting in his capacity as governor of the region. He has the political authority under the Persian emperor to do what he's doing. And verse 25, chapter 13, Nehemiah says, I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Right? I think you have to recognize here what you were alluding to was that the basic patriarchal structure of marriage in those days in which it was the father of the house uh, the, uh, who would give uh, his daughters in marriage to foreigners or, or likewise uh, make a deal to bring a foreigner as a wife uh, for a son. Uh, Marriage was an economic contract between families, uh, and that's just uh, the social reality of those times. And so the prohibition of intermarriage was a way of not having, uh, having the, Is the Israelites be unequally yoked to unbelievers, to use an expression of St. Paul in the New Testament. And, of course, for us, that kind of social situation is antiquated, but is, is, is if interpreted spiritually, if you don't mind my doing this, Sarah, is there a sense in which this in, in, in instruction not to be unequally yoked uh, still pertains to contemporary Christians? Wow, that's a bomb to drop on me. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, let me buy some time here by um, by reporting something I, I, I read in um, I've just been trying to get a little more um, educated on contemporary Judaism, you know, its history and how it's gotten here. And one of the more surprising and, um, you know, disturbing things I've read is that it is a well-known problem among the rabbis of North America, let's say, that's far more than persecution. It is intermarriage that is eating away at the Jewish community from the inside out, because Jews who don't marry other Jews 
inevitably lose their tether to the synagogue and to practice. Um, and even if it continues in a matrilineal line or whatever, or they try to raise the kids in both, the sheer force of both secular and at its base Christian American culture means that little tiny Judaism, even though there are more Jews in the U U.S. and even in Israel, just can't hold out. So it is actually the free situation of non no religious persecution, but the freedom to marry out that is causing the Jewish community to shrink. And actually, it's only the ultra-Orthodox communities that um, issue contraception and have lots and lots of children that keep the numbers up, though, of course, because they live in America, you know, plenty of them are going to end up defecting from the core of the community as well. So I don't think we should at least lightly dismiss this question of a minority, whether it's religious or ethnic, in a much larger mass society as, you know, some sort of... Um, um, you know, hatred or resentment or failure to come up to date. I mean, communities really vanish in these circumstances. I think I can't I can't use lofty language of either liberty or um, religious freedom or anything like that to say that this is not a real lived problem for a community that does not want to simply vanish off the pages of history. So I'm avoiding your question for Christians that way. Uh -huh. Well, yeah, then then let me come back at it from a different angle, because I think you're right. I, I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that when I was a boy growing up in the 50s, it was still drummed into us, don't you dare marry a Roman Catholic. I mean, <laughs> before we even had any idea about sex, love, and marriage, we were little ones in elementary school, don't you wow. ever marry a Roman Catholic. You know, so, I mean, this kind of tribalism. And you didn't, so good job. <laughs> the, po the point of that, that's passe because marriage is not the kind of economic alliance between households that it used to be, except perhaps in, in some uh, uh, highly affluent seg sectors of late corporate capital capitalism. But, you know, what I really want to get to is if the question of being unequally yoked is really about economic relationships, not that we can isolate economic from religion and culture and all that other stuff, but if what's really at heart here is that if you're unequally yoked when your livelihood depends on being subservient to a system, a cultural system, uh, that has values inimical to the kingdom values of the b biblical tradition. That's how I would like to interpret being unequally yoked, uh, because so much of our behavior is determined by, causally determined by, what we have to do to keep a roof over our heads and food in our bellies and, 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 and psychically survive. And, you know, necessity then becomes the mother of invention, and it causes us to behave in ways that conform to the economic system, even to the point in America today where religion itself has become a commodity on the market, an item on the smorgasbord table. So unequally yoked, that really raises for me profound questions how you can be in but not of a system of late corporate capitalism. 
Well, I mean, I personally wouldn't single out late corporate capitalism. All all systems are profoundly compromised and dangerous in all their own ways. And, you know, Nehemiah's, um, you know, Jerusalem under the Samaritans, un- under the Sumerians, under the Persians is difficult. And Paul under the Romans is difficult. So, um I don't know. Sure. I think I, I know you're not going to like me say that now. I think we are actually doing relatively better, but I don't deny that there are real questions about boundaries and walls and unequal yoking and ways people get inveigled in systems they don't want to be a part of surely for survival. Let's go on to walls then. I've, uh, the, for me, that means something a little bit different. Nehemiah's job mission is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, why would one want to rebuild walls? Well, of course, in the ancient world, walls were a line of defense, a line of defense against uh, attack, invasion, uh, sacking and looting of the city, destruction of the population. A wall can be understood as a boundary that is a, a primal line of defense. And walls have gates because unless there is intercourse between the internal life of the city and the external life of the surrounding environment, the city will starve. So you have both things that are needed. You need, a, you need the wall for defense and security, but you need the gates for the flow, the interchange back and forth. And I think this goes all the way down into basic biology. You know, you can go all the way down to the formation of cells, living cells, and the portals, the walls that they have that create their organic or integrity, and then the portals through which they interchange uh, with the environment. The human body, you know, uh, wrapped up in skin as a wall to protect it from the environment, also has orifices through which we breathe in and eat in and uh eliminate waste products and so forth. So I think this is a really fundamental ontological insight into the human condition of embodiment, that we are walled creatures, however walled with portals to allow interchanges. Yeah, you've just beautifully expressed the metaphysic of Leviticus, which we talked about last year, I think, that comes to play here in Nehemiah as well. So a Jerusalem with no walls at all is not even a city anymore. And the way it's the the lack of walls is being used by Sanballat and Tobiah, the bad guys of the story, is to run it as a hustle under the control of the kingdom of Samaria, which is kind of the the, the local overlord working on behalf of the Persians. And mm. so, to for Jerusalem to live, it has to have walls. But like you said, it also has to have gates. A room that's all walls and no doors is a prison. It's or no, it's not even that. It's a tomb, <laughs> you know. Right. But a uh, a a building that has doors in and out of it is a place that you can actually live. And that's the same thing. So so uh, Nehemiah says, you know, the gates can stand open six days a week. That's when you do your com- commerce. But on the seventh, they shut. And that is also for the life of the community that it can rest. It has a time to recover. So again, it's, it's so hard now because, of course, we have seen so many terribly deployed walls, walls that have no gates or aspire to have no gates that are meant to be walls of death. But the alternative is not zero walls at all. Zero walls doesn't work. That's that's death from chaos rather than, than death from excessive order. And neither of those are livable places for human beings. Absolutely. And that's, you know, 
As a clergy person in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, my synod requires me every year to take boundary training. And that's very interesting to me that we've discovered uh, because of the raft of uh, clergy sexual misconduct and all the lawsuits that came raining down on the churches. I was friendly with two previous bishops of my Virginia Synod, and uh, I'm not going to report in a gossipy way, but they were both deeply demoralized by all the bad clergy sexual misbehavior. And also, at least early on, the the serious problem of lawsuits that could financially bankrupt the church uh, without due diligence. So much of this boundary training comes out of CYA. It, people will understand <laughs> my uh, my New Jersey acronym. But Dad, don't you think, I mean, of course, boundaries training is appropriate, and not only for sexuality, but just for time. Pastors have a tendency to run themselves ragged because they think they're not proving their value otherwise. But I mean, to me, this this is a much deeper issue that is that is yeah. planted earlier in life and formed in society and culture that will finally reach its ugly manifestation if, say, you're a clergy with power and suddenly your lifelong lack of proper boundaries and, and, combined with power gives you access you never had before, but I don't think it's it's at the far end with clergy where this goes wrong. I think it's a, a fundamental tension. Probably it, it, it's, a, you know, a product of American culture with the, you know, our, our vision of the endless frontier and our mixing of lots of kinds of peoples together. You know, all of those good things inevitably have their dark side. And one of them is that all walls are defined as evil. Well, not all walls are evil. Some walls, like you said, give life. And how to sort that out, you you know, again, I think a narrative does a better job of it than, you know, concepts or, or laws, frankly, are, are going to be able to do. I think, Sarah, that this is a, there's a considerable amount of confusion in contemporary European-American culture about boundaries, about uh, boundaries and walls and, and portals. I mean, Pope Francis rightly said in response to political events in the United States some years back those who build walls without building bridges are not Christian. And I, I quite agree with uh, Pope Francis in that particular remark. Uh, but what are the boundaries? How are the boundaries negotiated? What are the portals? Uh, what are the necessity of boundaries? Uh, do they go all the way down to the cell and all the way up to uh, nation states and beyond? You know, these are all questions uh, that are uh, profoundly important and uh, about which there's a great deal of confusion. But Nehemiah, in any case, you're right, Sarah, uh, is, is, has a mission to restore the body of faith, to use Michael Wissegrod's expression. Uh, Jerusalem without walls is not a body at all. It's a corpse. It's disintegrating. It's decomposing. And the restoration of the walls is the restoration of the body of Israel, the body of faith. 
Uh, and that's, I think, what's going on in the book of Nehemiah in part. I, I think we can close this out now because we're about at our, our hour by using an example that will be very close to every practicing Christian, which is the tension between the holy people and the holy space in which they meet. We all know that you actually have to have a, a place with a roof and nowadays with open windows for people to convene if they're going to worship together, which means almost inevitably you're going to end up building a church. But we also know all too well how the church building itself easily becomes an idol and easily absorbs all of the attention of the holy community to the point that the outsiders, the, you know, the unbelievers, the the masses waiting to hear the good news are perceived as the enemy and the infidel and the Sanballat and Tobias threatening to invade. And so we have to keep the building locked and protected and behind extra walls and extra gates and extra doors. And, you know, it's property. It's, it is um, susceptible to uh, theft and attack. And you do need to have those walls there. But how do you do it in a way that doesn't undermine the whole purpose of the community gathering at all? I think, you know, <laughs> any pastor or council member knows deeply how enormous that tension is and how very difficult it is to resolve it in a livable way. It's sort of like the dilemma of living an embodied existence, <laughs> isn't yeah. it? I mean, I mean, it's just the, it's the same set of conundrums and difficulties. You know, during the pandemic in which we've been uh, out of the church building now for almost a year in the United States, I'm grateful that my local uh, uh, congregation is now uh, allowing under very controlled circumstances indoor worship. And it's such a relief to me personally to be back inside the sanctuary. Uh, and, that, you know, I would have been one of those who a year ago would have been pretty cab pretty flip about this to say the church is the people, not the building. Well, no, I think I've kind of the pandemic has forced me to rethink that. People need a house. They need a shelter. They need a a, a space of nurturing and, and 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 refreshment before they go out in their mission in the world from uh, Sunday to Sunday. So I, I'm thinking a lot about that lately. A church can be a showplace or an idol, but on the flip side, as you say, if you go into a church that is physically neglected, like you can just see no one is really taking care of the space, it tells you immediately about the congregation. And chances of your wanting to come back are pretty small because just how they're caring for their space on some level tells you what they think of what they're doing there. So again, it's it's not, uh, yeah, it, we have to take buildings more seriously than, than, like you said, the pious. Well, it's only the people. But uh, yeah, how for them not to become their own millstone around your neck is a huge problem, too. Just one more thought about that. You know, there was a time um, 20 or 30 years ago when the uh, solution to the decline of mainline Protestantism in the United States was uh, ripped off from that baseball movement, build it and they will come. And <laughs> right, right. So a lot of churches invested huge bucks into expanding their facilities, thinking that if they had something that compete could compete with the malls, they would attract people into their services. Well, now the malls are empty, just like, <laughs> just like the churches yeah. are. Are. And I think that, that that's an example of the false faith in the building uh, rather than a proper faithful use of buildings 
to shelter and nurture a community of faith. You know, it's worth mentioning that the temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt in Jerusalem after the exile was tiny compared to Solomon's original temple, not nearly as beautiful. And apparently the first reaction of the Israelites was to be totally let down by it. But that was the (laughs) second temple that persisted until Jesus' time. So maybe there's a lesson in that as well. Well, I think we have uh, made good use of this otherwise unlovable book of the Bible and hopefully commended it to our listeners as well. Next time on the show, we will be turning our laser focus on none other than the great Karl Barth. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.